0: Hi, I'm Victor Miller. I wrote Friday the 13th, and you're listening to Genretainment.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment here at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks.
2: And Julie. And today we speak to the authors of Dan O'Bannon's Guide to Screenplay Structure, Inside Tips from the Writer of Alien, Total Recall, and Return of the Living Dead. Plus, we have a bonus interview with the stars of Battlestar Galactica, Blood, and
3: Chrome.
1: Co-authors Matt Lohr and Diane O'Bannon tell us about their book, which reveals Dan O'Bannon's dynamic structure method, giving us an insider perspective of O'Bannon's writing method that created classics like Alien, Total Recall, and Return of the Living Dead, and explain how this can be applied to your own writing. They also analyzed the new Total Recall and Prometheus films.
2: Plus, we also speak to Battlestar Galactica, Blood and Chrome stars Luke Pasqualino, who played William Adama, and Ben Cotton, who played Coker. They tell us about their experience working on this new Battlestar story, which became a huge hit web series and just premiered on the Sci-Fi Channel. Now, before we get started with the featured interview, we want to point out to you that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality On Demand. It was a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com.
1: Now let's get started with our featured interview for today with the authors of Dan O'Bannon's Guide to Screenplay Structure. You're listening to Jean Entertainment, and this is Marks
3: and Julie, and today we speak to the authors of Dan O'Bannon's Guide to Screenplay Structure, Inside Tips from the Writer of Alien, Total Recall, and Return of the Living Dead. So hello, Matt and Diane, and thank you for agreeing to speak with us.
4: Well, hi. Thank you for having us.
1: It's a great pleasure. Thanks a lot, Marks and Julie. Let's start with how this book uh, first came about. For those listeners that may not know, uh, Dan O'Bannon did die before the completion of this book. And uh, so, could you explain a little bit how you became involved, Matt, and what role you played in the uh, creation of this book, Dan?
4: Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Dan died in uh, 2009. He he did complete the book and left this manuscript for us. I we had tried to get it published before and had a couple of nibbles, but they wanted the structure of it changed uh, rather dramatically, so we we passed on getting it published at that time and. Uh fortunately, I could uh, contact Matt again, who had, who had worked with him. Matt, do you want to talk a little bit about how you got involved in the project?
5: Yeah, uh, I first became involved with the book in 2001. Uh, and that way they will tell you how long in gestation this project has been. Uh, I was a graduate student at Chapman University in Orange County, California, uh, studying screenwriting. And uh, my thesis advisor, who is Leonard Schrader, who's the writer of Kiss of the Spider-Woman, uh, came through our class, our graduate class, and mentioned that the school's filmmaker-in-residence, every semester of the school has like a master filmmaker who teaches master classes, and this filmmaker-in-residence at that time was Dan, and he was working on this book and was looking for a graduate student to help him out with the project, to do some research, possibly some some film analysis work for the book, and my entire class basically came to me almost individually and said, this would be a great fit map for you. this You need to get involved with this. So I talked to Leonard Schrader, and he put me in touch with Dan. Uh, we met at Dan's home uh, in L.A., and uh, I worked with him on a book after that for about two years. And then, of course, uh, Dan's health unfortunately, took a turn for the worse, and we kind of fell out of touch for a few years. But I'd always remembered the project. And um, after Dan's passing, I sort of reconnected with the family. I attended uh, Dan's memorial service in 2010 and reconnected with Diane. And uh, about a year after that, she approached me and uh, – informed me that uh, Michael Wiese Productions was interested in publishing the book and wanted a little bit of uh, sort of polish and some additional work done on the manuscript. And basically said to me, you know this material. You worked with him for two years. Can you do this? And I fortunately had nothing else on my plate, so uh, I was glad to take it on.
1: Uh, it's turned out really well, I think. Um, it just okay. came out New Year's Day, correct, in the U.S.?
5: Yeah, New Year's Day in January. It's coming out uh, later this month in the U.K. It's already available for pre-order on com. so you check okay. it out there. <laughs>
1: We found chapter three very interesting. Uh, you know, Rarely do books about writing actually break down other methods, uh, but this book actually breaks down five previous famous methods, uh, I think, very well. well I do really like this quote <laughs> yeah. from assistant professor Blair Davis.
3: Want me to read it? Sure. Okay. This is the quote. Dan O'Bannon made movies worth watching, and his guide to screenplay structure is a superior lesson in how to start things off right by building a more exciting structure for your script. Any screenwriter that uses Aristotle to analyze the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a (laughs) (laughs) must-read.
5: Yes. He recognizes, Dan in the book recognizes um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as having many of the traits of what Aristotle considers to be classic tragedy. Blood, suffering, wounds in open view, I think is a close. Um, One of the only differences is classical tragedy usually predicated the fall of a noble character. And in Dan's opinion, there are no noble characters in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I think is a fairly fair statement to make. I mean, most of <laughs> the characters in that are basically in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and as Dan says, sorry, Toby. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: I, I'll take your word for it. I haven't been able to watch it. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I have a very low-tolerant threshold for violence and gore. <laughs>
5: <laughs> so you certainly haven't see a lot of the damn stuff, then. Because, I mean, I'll tell you a story. I was... I remember I watched Alien recently. I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I was sitting there eating dinner while I was watching it. And they get to the scene where they're dissecting the facehugger. And I literally had to put my fork down and push my finger. And I said, damn it, Dan. You couldn't even cross me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, I'm thinking I I should probably if I want to go seriously on a diet I should just start watching those scary
5: movies. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Go on the go on the Kr- the kruger Myers
1: Borges diet. It'll swim you right down.
3: <laughs> well, I already don't eat meat, so I don't have that additional
5: ick factor.
1: <laughs> oh, okay, well, that's good. Well, uh you know we really found that chapter really interesting. What <clears throat> was the thought process of including that chapter? Because I mean, I felt like I got like a. Script writing history lesson on most of them. Yes, very
3: informative. Dan was really a
4: highly educated guy, and uh, I think the the tone of the book is real conversational, so you you sort of don't notice that you're getting a, a heavy dose of some real concentrated uh, knowledge about the history of of
5: writing stories okay. in the book. Uh, and I, I, one of Dan's most important points that he makes is he basically says, you know, I'm not the only person that ever knew how to do this. He says, I have a system that's worked very well for me. It's the proof of the pudding is the work that I've put out there and the reputation it has. But there's plenty of people who have had theories that have held water and have worked. I mean, Aristotle is 3,000 years old now, and people are still reading that book, and I don't think it's just for the historical value that they're reading it. And Dale was smart enough to recognize that. He was smart enough to say, just because these systems don't have my name on top of them doesn't mean they're without value. And he was willing to say, these are points that I think are worthwhile, that will be helpful for you to know
1: uh, in your own work. And before the creation of um, of this book and you know, O'Bannon's Method, you know, Matt, what would you consider yourself? What what method did you follow at first?
5: I've read a lot of the major screenwriters. I mean, most of the books that we analyzed in there, I had read prior to uh, working with Dan. I was already familiar with Sid Field. I was already familiar with Robert McKee. Uh, I mean, I, I went through film school. I, I went through a, a program that was fairly straightforward on the sort of three-act structure kind of concept, the Sid Field paradigm. And fortunately, I found as I was have done my own work, my own screenwriting, I have a fairly innate sense of structure. I tend to get my beats in in good spots uh, pretty naturally. I don't have to do a lot of excessive outlining as far as that goes. But I, Dan, I mean, working with him, he works with the three-act system as well, but it's almost a reconception of sort of the thematic underpinnings of those acts and what they mean in terms of, The characters and their journey, which I think is interesting. It's not so much a a structural innovation as it is sort of a a, a thematic, metaphysical sort of reconfiguration of what storytelling is, which I found really interesting.
1: Now, the method's called dynamic structure. Now, it kind of departs, at least one aspect of it, departs from standard views of...
3: A protagonist's journey, and it focuses on both the protagonist and the antagonist. Is that correct? Could you explain that a little bit further?
5: Well, absolutely, because one of the funny things is I don't even use the terms protagonist and antagonist anymore mm-hmm. after working on this book. I refer to them as positive antagonist and negative antagonist.
3: Because
5: <laughs> one, of, one of the major innovations that Dan has is most people, when they tell you about story, they say that the general idea of a story is a protagonist who wants something and has obstacles in his path that he has to get around or through to get what he wants. And Dan's innovation is to look at it and say, it's not a protagonist versus obstacles. It's antagonists in opposition. To use an example, a film like Alien, for example, has as the positive antagonist the crew of the Nostromo, meaning that they're the people who are emotionally invested and they're the people that we're rooting for. But everybody's protagonist is somebody else's opposition. So on the opposite side, you have the creature. And the creature in Alien has a very clear, very definite goal and motivation. He wants to eat the entire crew of the Nostromo. It doesn't have to be a, you know, a goal of Shakespearean complexity. It just has to be there and it has to be defined. So, you know, he wants to eat the crew, the crew wants to make that not happen, and you have them going into opposition with one another. And it's, you know, it really sort of enriches story because you'd always hear people talking about, oh, well, stories are much better if the villains are good. And I always thought that that was true, but I never really understood why that was true. And I think Dan's system really kind of hits the nail on the head with it because it gives you a rounded conflict from both sides of the equation. At one point in the book, I believe Dan says something along the lines of, if you have a character in a story who trips over a chair, within the context of the story, that chair should have a motive and a reason for tripping the person. And that really opened my eyes. It's like, wow, you can have inanimate objects that have their own objectives in these stories. And I think it's really a way that people will be able to take the events of their stories and the characters of their stories and really enrich them in interesting ways.
3: Yeah, that is interesting because there have been times where I've watched, you know, a movie or a TV show and I couldn't enjoy it as much as I thought. And then I would realize there's a very weak antagonist or a weak enemy
5: or or they just weren't
3: that interesting. And
5: and really, You see that a lot in comedies. It's a problem with comedies because – with comedy, you don't want to make the villain too strong because then the movie is, the threat is too great. And you can't laugh if you're, like, terribly in fear for the character's life. Mm-hmm. So we even talk about that, I think, a little bit because we analyzed Dumb and Dumber at one point in the book. And I think we discuss how the sort of negative antagonist idea in a comedy is a difficult one to, to pull off properly. But even in, the, in movies where it should be strong, like, I saw um, the new Sylvester Stallone film this weekend uh, Bullet to the Head. And I really couldn't tell you after watching that movie for 90 minutes what the villains want and what they're after other than shooting a bunch of people which they accomplish. They shoot a lot of people in that movie. <laughs> that's really all that's really all that they do.
3: Yeah. You're already telling a one-sided story because really the bad guy and the bad guy said they're not the bad guy. The other guy
4: Yeah, in way. I, yeah, uh, Julie, I really think you hit the you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, to to bring real tension to the story, the villain's got to be somebody you're
5: really scared of, or he's really got a chance to win here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. If he doesn't have a chance to win, if you don't believe that the villain might have a chance of getting away with it, I mean, if you look at The Return of the Living Dead, the villain practically does get away with it in that movie, almost. I mean, everybody gets wiped out, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that's a really interesting thing. And and, and you, you also hit on the idea that everybody is the star of their own story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that famous quote about you know an actor is hired to play the grave digger in Hamlet, and he says, Oh, I just got cast in this great play called Hamlet. It's about a grave digger who meets a Prince. <laughs> Everybody, you know, you're always the protagonist, you're always the main character of your own story. So, you know, if you ask the alien, you know, well, what's alien about? He'd say, Oh, it's about this this heroic monster trying to defeat these insidious people who want to keep from being eaten.
3: Yeah, well, and, it's um, sort of like the lioness going after the wildebeest. It's not so much that the lioness is bad. It's just, you know, she's got to eat, and the wildebeest is there.
5: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, who do you root for in that situation? Right. And, and, and look, I see plenty of T-shirts with that alien on it. I'm sure that, you know, I don't see as many Ripley T-shirts running around.
1: But there's somebody there's somebody
5: rooting for him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a
3: good point.
1: Yeah, it became an iconic type character. Yeah. So in the book, y- you also analyze quite a few uh, films using the method. Yeah. I thought the Dracula one was really interesting, the original Dracula. Mm-hmm. You don't see that analyzed very often. Love that. I'm kind of curious, some more recent movies, if you've seen them, that are kind of reimaginings or, or sequels to Dan's work. Have you seen the new Total Recall movie? Either yes, we have, yeah, Okay, so
5: Yeah, Diana was actually at the premiere for that I believe.
1: Oh uh,
4: really? Excellent. Yeah, I did. I will I'll drop some uh, premiere gossip. They were they were kind enough to invite me to the premiere and um I can't say that the uh The Total Recall was one of my favorite films originally and it, it it dragged on in our house for a long time. Dan was writing on it on and off for years. just that would bring it back and whatnot but um uh, so i i didn't have particularly high hopes for the remake but uh i went to it and i was pleasantly surprised i really enjoyed it and um i thought they they uh, it had very little blood which sort of amazed me but uh, they sure crashed every kind of vehicle and every kind of metal
5: <laughs> that went on and
4: I, I really i really kind of enjoyed it i i liked the um i thought the casting was really good and it moved along. It was fun to watch. So I was sort of surprised. And it got a nice uh, reception. And it went away rather quickly. But what did you think of it, uh, Matt? Uh, I
5: had surprisingly the same feelings you did. Because it was one of those movies I went into it. It wasn't even that I went into it not expecting to like it. I went into it with no expectations whatsoever. I was like, I don't know what this movie's going to be. I'm seeing it because it's got Dan's name attached to it in whatever tangential way that it does. And I watched it, and I walked out, and I said, wow, I was surprisingly entertained by that. It shows that sometimes, because one of the things, I mean, it's a movie that's only really trying to entertain. It's not even as ambitious, I think, in the, as the 1991, and some of the things it gets into. But I, I think about it in contrast with a film like Prometheus, which came out this summer, which was sort of the prequel to the Alien franchise. And sometimes, maybe it's better to aim low and to succeed than to aim high and miss what you're aiming at. Mm-hmm. But I think in some ways, Prometheus was really going for something. When you watch that movie, it's a movie that's straining with every fiber of its being to be profound and to be about something. And Total Recall was like, no, oh, we're going to blow a bunch of stuff up and <laughs> shoot a bunch of people, and pulled it off very well. Um, you can probably tell that that's important to me. It's like, well, I don't know. How many people got shot in it?
1: <laughs>
5: what is he, Lion's playbook? I don't know. How many people get killed in it? Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I, I think that I think the total recall for what it was trying to do was successful it. Uh For what Prometheus was attempting to accomplish, I think it was less so. I mean, Diane and I, as we always say, we could talk, we could go on for days. We could we could give you three hours just on Prometheus if we wanted <laughs> right.
1: to. So script structure-wise for Prometheus, where do you think Ooh. they went wrong? What's their big perhaps misstep that they may have taken? How much time do you have? Um, <laughs> <laughs>
5: Well, one, one thing that Brian and I have talked about since we were talking about characters before, one of the things that, that makes Alien an effective film is when you have these early scenes of the Nostromo crew when they're coming out of hypersleep, and we have that great scene at the beginning where they're all kind of eating together, and they're, you know there's a lot of camaraderie, and the camera's almost just like a passive observer in that scene. And you really get a sense that these people know each other, and that they've been working together for a long time. I felt none of that in Prometheus. I didn't right. feel that these people knew each other. I didn't feel that there was any real investment that any of them had in the others. Uh, even in some of the relationships that were sort of the more romantic relationships, like Numi Rapace and the, the male lead, I don't. I didn't really feel a, a real strong sense of connection between them. And if you don't feel that the characters are connecting with each other, it makes it harder for you to connect with them and to therefore invest in them and in what they're going through. I don't know if, if you felt that way about the characters as well, Diane, because that's, Definitely something that I took away from it.
4: Well, yes, and also there were so many of them, it was hard to invest. It it was hard to know who to follow in Prometheus. Okay, who's going to be the ultimate person we follow here? And um, I I think that was divided up uh, really to
5: the disadvantage of the film. Right. And and the other point that I think is very important, and Diane and I talked about this a lot, which is one of the other sort of major innovations of Dan's system, is the idea of the point of no return. Uh, And the idea of the point of no return because you have a conflict where you're approaching it from multiple sides, people usually think of the second act, the end of the second act, as being what they call the darkest hour or the lowest point, which is you know, the moment at which your protagonist reaches the, the nadir of their journey. The problem with Dan's system, and the reason that won't work within Dan's system, is somebody's low point is somebody else's high point. So if you're seeing a conflict from both sides, you can't think of it as the low point because the, the negative antagonist is in his glory. It's the greatest moment he has in the entire film. So the way Dan thinks of it is not as a low point for somebody, but as the moment in which the conflict that has been defined is irrevocable and unavoidable. Basically, the only option left to you is to the death, no holds barred, devil take behind most, battle to the finish. That's the only option that's left. And for the life of me, Diane and I have talked about it and talked about it and talked about it, and we can't figure out when that happens in Prometheus. Because the story is so diffuse and the characters are so scattered, there's not one moment that's easy to point to and say, oh, this is the moment where it all comes together. This is the moment where they can't back out. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like they could almost back out at any point. So when you have a story where you have ill-defined characters and an ill-defined moment of ultimate conflict, it's hard to have a good story as a result of that.
4: Mm -hmm. Right. A good story in terms of, you know, leading your viewers to a climactic moment that defines the film or finishes it up, you know, as a satisfactory experience for the audience.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, you all put it much more succinctly. I, I, I watched it and I thought, you know, it, it just seemed rather laborious, a story to get through for me. And, and that while it was, it was well cast with good actors, I was the same. I didn't really care about any of them that much. Right, right, exactly. And, yeah. and but I think there's a difference between getting good actors involved, and and yet still having a good camaraderie among either the actors or the characters, and maybe the characters just weren't as fleshed out for them to
5: work with. I'm
3: I wasn't, I wasn't sure what happened. It just didn't work for me. <laughs>
5: I think that's more of a character thing because I mean, if you look if you look at Alien, you have a, just as strong a cast, but those characters are memorable, even you know with the limited screen time that some of them have, mm-hmm. because. One, I think they do bring a lot, of, a lot of gravity to the performance is just based on their own personae, but they play off of each other so well. You have those moments where Tom Skerr and Sigourney Weaver get to have their sort of individual moments together. You have Harry Dean Stanton and Yathakoto are kind of the, quote, blue-collar guys on the ship, and they kind of have their connection. It seems like they tried to do some of that in Prometheus and it just really came off fairly forced, I thought. Yeah,
3: Laborious is a force, good word for it. Yeah, you can't force chemistry. I mean, you don't have it or you don't. <laughs>
1: Absolutely, well, absolutely. I found myself more fascinated in the beginning of Prometheus with the yeah. android because they spent so much time with him in the, in the first. Well,
3: it's because they had Michael Fassbender. He's a
4: good
1: actor.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, and and you know, I hate to say this, but he, he's the only one with any sex appeal. <laughs> you're That's right. true.
1: That wasn't the reason why that's I liked true. him. <laughs> but don't know.
4: I mean, that's you know, you too, like he's, you know, I mean, you're not supposed to like him, but he's the only beautiful, likable, magnetic. Strong character in that, really. I mean, the heroine is as uh, well, but
1: um, yeah, yeah. The, the lead male, the romantic interest of hers, is kind of a jerk, really. So. Yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. He's completely uninteresting, and uh,
5: Fastman overpowers him. Mm-hmm. Well, he also, he's also the victim of, of something that's also part of the bad writing, which is that they have this black slime in the movie, and the black slime does something different to everybody that it comes in contact with.
3: I was very. And they never
5: really. They never really explain why that is exactly, you know, why it's, you know, oh, this guy, you know, turns into spider zombie. This guy gets fish, fish, fish coming out of his eyes. They never really explain it, you know.
1: That's true. They don't.
3: Yeah. And then I didn't understand the end that well either. You know, I mean, like if she, if she said, I'm, I'm going off, we're going there. And he was like, why? And it was like to kill as many as those no good SOBs as we could find. I, I would have been like, that makes sense.
5: Well, you. Well, they, I mean, they couldn't very well come out and have her say at the end, why are we going so we can get 15 more dollars in 2014 for you guys?
3: <laughs> yeah, for Prometheus too. The
5: whole, I mean, they couldn't.
3: Yeah, that's true. That's basically I, what she said. There's
4: no, there's no climax to resolve. The movie just ends. Yeah. Because the story has not been built succinctly. And that's something that Dan is talking about. I mean, the book is called Dynamic Structure for a reason. That there are structural points that you've got to hit if you're telling a story to lead your audience along and make them care and keep them involved and have a, an organically orgasmic moment of, uh, you know, of expo- exposition about what the film was all about, a moment of triumph or defeat
3: or something, so that
4: the audience finishes up emotionally with the story.
3: Right. They either, if they'd sacrificed themselves to take them out, or at the end she'd have been like, you know, you know, they can't make it back, and they're, you know, screwed either way. And I, if she'd been like, I'm going to go take out those as many of them as I can, I'd have been like, yeah, but instead of yeah. I'm going to go get, try to get some answers from them, and I'm like, are you kidding?
1: <laughs>
5: and I, and I will say I will say in in of defense which is not a a phrase I use to start a lot of sentences. In Prometheus' defense, and Diane and I have talked about this a lot, it's a wonderfully made film. Mm -hmm. It's it's beautiful to look at. Production design is exceptional. I saw it in 3D. I don't believe you did, Diane, but I saw it in 3D. And the 3D was outstanding, really well done. I'm not the biggest 3D fan in the world. Uh, So as far as just an object to look at, Mm -hmm. it almost might be a better thing to have just like, on your TV is like ambiance at a party. You just have it on in the background, without sound. And people could just occasionally look up and see like some sort of breathtaking image. They they not worry about the pesky parts where the people are talking to each other and trying to relate to one another.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but for Total Recall, it seems like everybody likes it. That was interesting. Uh, Diane... That That's the
3: one we really liked the music, wasn't it? I'm sorry? We really liked the music in Total Recall as well. I remember that stuck out. So, i think so yeah sorry that was a digression <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, that's, that's okay that's interesting because i didn't really even notice it, it like... <laughs>
5: neither did i actually well, we i remember get... music in the original total recall being very good yes uh, yeah i think we were Jerry, Jerry Goldsmith's I, music.
1: i think we were accidentally biased or made aware of it because we had heard on uh we've been a
5: hearing about interview
1: it interview on like npr i think where they were talking to the composer. But he did oh, okay. Yeah. Plus, so, I
3: have a little bit of a music background, so if if it's a really oh, good cool. movie but the music's bad, that can ruin it for me.
1: <laughs> I can understand that, absolutely. Because he actually went and traveled around the city to record noises, like organic noises, like car doors being slammed in like a parking garage and such, and then integrate those in with with the more yeah, it's all
3: well uh,
4: thought music. out. So well, I'll have to listen. I'll have to uh, listen to some of it. Sounds the way you describe it. It makes it, it makes
3: it interesting for me.
1: So. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> it probably sucked you in. You didn't even realize it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I remember I remember a lot of shattering glass noise, like yeah. Diane talked about. Mm-hmm. But we all seem to like to recall. It was interesting that Diane mentioned that there's a lot less blood than the original. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, but there was a lot less blood.
4: I did. Well, I thought, it, I thought it was remarkable, because I think that's how they got their, their uh, general, you know, the rating that they did. Mm-hmm. You know, they they had to cut something, and they didn't cut the action, they cut the blood. And I think that was a very good choice on the part of the producers, Because although I thought it was a little unrealistic that she just gets a little pink scratch on her cheek or or whatever, I really enjoyed watching all of the metal being crushed and all of the elevators and stuff crumpling. I really, really uh, got off on that and thought it was great. So I I think they chose the right thing to to drop the blood and and keep the action.
5: There's a three-way chase about midway through that film. Where it's sort of done on multiple tiers because the cars have like these sort of anti gravity hookups.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
5: And I remember watching that scene and just saying, this is really well done. It's logistically, I thought it was well worked out. The special effects, it looked great. So I remember even just for that scene, I remember telling people, you should see that movie just for this freeway chase because it's really well done. <laughs> right.
1: It was. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you say makes, that you think? make dynamic structure really stand out compared to some of the other methods.
5: Well, we talked about the point of no return which which I think is important. Oh, go ahead, Dan, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, I was just
4: going to say that you know, it's called dynamic structure. This isn't Dan O'Bannon's rules of writing because Dan sort of thought that rules would embalm screenplays and he didn't want that to happen. You, know, you can you can be you can be boxed in by rules, but he his the structural system gives you you know gives you places in the, that you can hang your hat if you've got a story idea you know inspiration only takes you so far and then you run out of steam and you need to know where to go next you even start to question whether your story idea was any good at all can you go anywhere with this and i think the the book is really successful in showing you you know giving you these signposts these structural requirements that you need to meet in order to move your story along where to go and how to lead your audience emotionally through it the the point of having of telling a story of a movie or any a play or anything is to lead the audience emotionally through something he, dan introduces in this book the concept of hedonic adaptation you know, when he when he wrote this book uh, and he gave it to me to read, I said, well, this is great, but you don't mention hedonic adaptations. And Dan said, well, I can't give away all my secrets you know. <laughs> so he thought this was very important. It may seem somewhat obvious when you look at it, but it's very vital. When he died, I thought, well, I'll just put in what I know about hedonic adaptation because Dan thinks it's important and would make his book complete. So, uh, So I've talked about that. And what that is, is hedonic means it's like hedonism. It's of the body and of the senses. And hedonic adaptation is is a concept of how quickly the human body, this this happens to the human body so it can't be overcome, the human body, the human mind becomes very, very adapted very quickly to whatever its changed circumstances are, whether it's... um, uh, you know, heat or cold, or or you you're in in story structure. You're giving in story. You're given some information by the storyteller, and very quickly that becomes normal. And Matt, maybe you can
5: explain this better. Well, one of the great things is the book actually has an explanation already in it of how this works. Uh, if you read the analysis that's in the book of the film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a film that does this really incredibly well. The basic idea is, in any story, you start out with a world that, for the characters, is for them normal. Invasion of the Body Snatchers starts out in a very normal, very sedate, very serene version of the world. Or Alien, for example. Sure, there's interstellar space travel in Alien, which is spectacular to us. But to the characters in Nostromo, that's all in a day's work. They're used to that. But then something comes along in the world and elevates you to a new plateau of understanding of what your world is. An alien, is when they stumble upon these little pods. Oh, my gosh, we found pods. We now live in a universe where there's life on other planets. And then one of those eggs cracks open and attaches itself to John Hurt's face. (laughs) Then we kick up again to another plateau. Oh, my gosh, we live on a planet with other life. And they might not have very nice intentions for us. And then over dinner, something in the food doesn't agree with John Hurt. And the creature busts out and runs off into the, in the bow of the ship. And Oh, my gosh. These creatures are definitely malevolent, the and they've killed one of us. And then the next time we see it, we bump up again. Oh, my gosh. Now they're huge. Mm-hmm. And then we bump up again. Oh, my gosh. Now they've killed our captain. Bump up again. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm the only one left. And every time you go through these, these levels, you move up to a new plateau, and the characters rise up with it. They rise up to the level of the situation. And they, they now realize, okay, we live in a new world. These are the new rules. We understand that, and we have to adapt to it. And if you're telling your story well, through the entire story, as soon as your characters start getting comfortable with their new situation, something comes along that alters that situation again, that makes it scarier, that makes it more threatening, that makes it more thrilling for the audience. One of the things that's great also that's built into this system is what Dan and I came to call the what the hell was that moment. And a lot of times if you watch a horror A lot of times if you're watching a horror film, you have the scene where the monster first attacks. And usually you'll notice in a lot of horror movies, when the monster first attacks, it's very chaotic. It's usually dark. You don't get a good look at the creature. And the characters run away, and they catch their breath, and they lick their wounds. And somebody inevitably says, what the hell was that? (laughs) And that's when when you can flip your exposition in. It's a built-in place to have a character say, well, according to such-and-such book that I've read... That would be this, and this has this power, and this can do such and such. And it's a really elegant way of sort of building in these moments to tell your audience the things they need to know to be able to follow your story. An alien basically is a textbook on how to do this. An invasion of the body snatchers is a textbook on how to do this.
3: I'm glad I mentioned really, that
5: one. Sorry. Yeah, and it and it comes it comes from nature. Like Diane said, this comes... We didn't get this from any kind of screenwriting, so this comes from... I think it was a, a study that was done for psychology today, back in the 1970s, the theory was originally developed. And Dan was brilliant enough to look at it and say, yeah, hey, this is how movies work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at his movies, he was very good at working an audiences' nerves pretty well. Mm-hmm. Oh, you sure. have to keep it moving along. You
4: need to up yeah. the ante or change it, because your audience, especially sitting in a theater, is going to be, you know, absorb very quickly what's going on. So you have very little time for that exposition that a writer sometimes needs to explain something without being very flat-footed about it. Oh, honey, you remember last week when I took <laughs> Blah Blah to the right. dentist, don't you? Yes, dear. Well, you know, you don't want to do it in that flat-footed way. So so this is another way of, uh, of gaining that moment that the writer needs to explain something in which... The audience has just been stunned by something, and they're incredibly receptive. What just happened oh that that's what happened exactly you know if you stun them with it, tell' them what it meant, and then move along and keep doing that you know you'll you'll get a screenplay that moves the audience along. the audience isn't lagging behind isn't losing interest. you know you have to keep moving along so so it's as I said, the hedonic adaptation it seems obvious when you talk about it that people get used to very, very quickly get used to the situation they're in. It can be, if you pay attention to this small thing, it can be very, very
5: valuable in moving your story forward. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And you can see examples of how it doesn't work. I hate to keep dogpiling on Prometheus, but if you, if you remember, there's a moment in that movie where the guy gets hit by the black slime, and he turns into, like, the slavering slime zombie, and they fight him, and they send him on fire. And then about 20 minutes later, another guy attacks as a slavering slime zombie and they fight him and set him on fire it's the same exact beat at the same exact pitch and that's not moving your story forward i actually remember reading some critics who were confused because they thought it was the same guy come back because it's the same exact beat uh, on the same exact level of intensity that's mm-hmm. not moving your story forward in a way that's constantly keeping things advancing it's moving things forward in a straight line and that's not interesting and, and to use another example we've talked about the Transformers movies. How the last half hour of those movies, the last hour of those movies, is always just this solid wall of action. And it's pitched at the same level. It's pitched at the same volume of sound. And it just, it's it's relentless. And it doesn't escalate. It just roars at you at 900 miles an hour and hits you at 900 miles an hour for 60 minutes and just wears you out. Mm-hmm. So it's a very it different kind out. of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's the difference between like a roller coaster and just like, a ride that just pounds you into submission, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like well, not We
4: talked about that with the new Total Recall, also how they had that wonderful little mm-hmm. moment where the, um, uh, you know, he figures out that he he discovers he can play the piano, you know. So yeah. so they uh, they had that little rest moment. You you need a little bit of a rest for the uh, and in character development, even in that action movie.
3: That's true. Outdoors. You have to
5: catch your breath. <laughs> Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And and not only and the beautiful thing about that moment in Total Recall is not only is, does it get, let the audience catch its breath in the characters as well, it, it reveals character. Because it is that moment where he's sitting there and he's saying, Well, wow, this is something of who I was that I didn't know before And it's actually really and it's done with almost no dialogue. It's really elegantly done actually. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd use the word elegant to describe the remake of Total Recall.
3: But, <laughs> there it is. But there is an elegance to being able to Act and convey a great deal of information without actually saying anything. And oh, yeah,
4: yes. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, so that's why yep. we feel that you know, Total Recall is altogether a, a, a better put together film than um, than Pearl Prometheus. And I, I really don't know what happened there because Ridley's uh, you know Ridley's dynamite in a lot of things, but that shows you how even a very very good professional can be led astray if you're not sure what's going on with your story, if you if you haven't got the ability to, uh, uh,
3: you know, track a story through its arc. Yeah, sometimes you try to do too
5: much. And yeah, exactly. It was, it, it can I mean, be, that's the thing. It is, the film is nothing. It's not ambitious, but it doesn't right. fulfill the ambitions that it sets out for itself. Yeah.
3: So now it's, it's hard sometimes to scale things back.
1: Yeah. And it's that, like you spoke, the lack of escalating... Conflict uh, creates a, a pacing problem that makes it feel like it's going on and on. Yeah. It just, I know, it, you know, Julie probably had trouble staying focused on it because of that.
3: Yeah, uh, it's sort of like how I love how you mentioned, you know, in in the book, the invasion of the Body Snatchers. I watched that as a kid, and it scared the ever-loving crap out of me. <laughs> now, oh yeah, you know, you know, here's a film where they didn't have a lot of special effects. There wasn't a lot really the tension was very much in this escalating oh gosh what's happening oh now we got an idea what's happening oh now it happened to someone oh now it's happening to everyone and it just sort of builds and builds and builds and it's that tension that builds and you can have that kind of tension without you know a huge cast and without a huge budget it's it's the s it's the the escalation of that tension that pulls you in i think
5: it helps to have a strong screenplay, and it helps to have somebody like Don Siegel, who directed the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, who is a guy that comes out of B-movies. So yeah. he knows how to do a lot with a little, and he does that in that movie. It's interesting that you mention how much it scared you, because most people don't really think of Invasion of the Body Snatchers as being a horror film. But in That's the book, <laughs> Dan, calls it, Dan calls it his all-time favorite horror film, uh-huh. which I think is really interesting.
3: I think uh, to me that that really set the stage for I have had like a lifelong fear of zombies and then like that when the Borg showed up in Star Trek they scared the crap out of me and it's the idea well, that you could be like this empty husk and something else takes over. A,
1: a good unexpected example of that was in the TV show Eureka because they do an episode where they get kind of like a body snatch type method and it's actually very they did a good job escalating, you know, the conflict, making it very scary. Like even though you were kids, a comedy, pretty much.
3: Yeah, but I think they they must have studied your
1: stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think they really yeah. studied that. And
3: <laughs> they must have learned some. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I was wondering, and you may completely disagree on me on, on this, and that's perfectly fine. That'll uh, make
3: fun radio. <laughs> yeah, because
1: uh, this is I don't think you cover this in the book, but I was wondering. I, I do see a lack. And uh, horror movies, and mm-hmm. horror movies, uh, a lack of that kind of escalating conflict. And but one example, I think, and the good ones where it does seem like it is you can really see it very powerfully because it's it's got so few tools to play with, is with um, found footage type movies. There's a pattern in all their stories. You watch a few of them, you kind of get 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 it down. And where it does escalate the danger,
3: yeah, some and, are better than others.
1: Some other than others. And you always get you have to get to know these characters and care about Blippet so you appreciate what's gonna happen in the end to him. And there's always a big climax ending to him. You know, do you feel like some of those, like paranormal activity or I
3: liked Troll Hunter. You may not have seen that one though. That was what Norwegian
5: I did I did I did see Troll Hunter. Oh I had, what? I had a weird reaction to Troll Hunter. To me I would really have liked it better. If it had been a movie more about hunting trolls and less about driving around Norway in the rain. The last (laughs) time they like that's all that was going on. I guess, well, I wouldn't have gone to see, like, Rain Van Driver. I wouldn't have gone to see that movie. Um, Because it's interesting, though. But you you do make a good point. It's very tricky with horror movies. Because horror movies, one of the things you notice, particularly with sequels, because horror movies are films that have sequels a lot of times. Something that you almost always see happen in horror films is the follow-up movies are always much gorier and bloodier than the first movies. Yeah. Compare the first Halloween with the second Halloween. There's literally a scene in Halloween 2 where a man kills himself by breaking his neck after slipping and falling in a puddle of blood. There's nothing like that in the first Halloween. <laughs> so it's always, you know, it's always, almost any with any kind of sequel almost, you feel like, well, we have to top ourselves. We have to do something bigger if you look at the scale of, like the batman movies for example how much they escalate in scope Whereby by this last one it came out last summer you have people essentially flying around in spaceships in that movie mm-hmm. more or less um which we didn't see anybody flying around in a spaceship in the first one we were content to have him just driving his little tank uh but he goes from a tank to a motorcycle to a spaceship through the course of the movies so it always has to be something bigger mm-hmm. um so, I think that it is tricky you know, with horror movies because a lot of times, one thing you do have in horror movies, though, they do have very strong antagonists, they, they don't have a lot of overt personality, which can be difficult. Um, Jason Voorhees, for his powerful and his indestructible views, doesn't seem to have a tremendous amount going on in the personality factor.
1: <laughs> in a way,
5: though, that's one of the interesting things about that I thought made Freddy versus Jason interesting because Freddy has tons of personality. And you put him up against Jason, who's just like this juggernaut who barely thinks. And that was interesting. I thought that was an interesting dynamic for them to put the two of them against each other.
1: That
3: was. I don't know. Maybe eventually
5: you'll talk me into watching
1: that one. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I should. Yeah, it's yeah, that one gets should. a
5: little gruesome, too. so There's a scene where Jason attacks a rave in a cornfield
1: that I remember pretty vividly. Yeah.
3: Okay, never mind. You're not going to talk me into seeing that
1: one. i <laughs> <laughs> then been <it's> into a cornfield. <laughs> the Descent. Um, a, a recent horror movie, I thought, did a good job of that, The Descent. It, it, just like you said, in Descent 2, it was all blood and gore, and it, it kicked <laughs> it up a notch.
6: Right. So. I, mean, I mean, one of the
5: interesting things is if you watch a lot of these films and the way they're structured, Alien is one of the movies that sort of set the template for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, Dan only said basically Alien is a haunted house movie in space. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. You're
1: right. And it's really one of the first, to my knowledge, true, like sci-fi, but yet kind of horror, kind of blending into those genres a little bit. Well,
4: so. oh, that's, a, that's a good point, Matt. Will
5: you want to address that one? Absolutely, because we, um, we talked a lot about the thing that's interesting about Alien, and the reason why you see it show up on a lot of lists of the best science fiction movies and the best horror movies is the first hour or so of Alien is fixated on what is basically the central conceit of science fiction, which is curiosity about the unknown. Mm-hmm. It's you know, oh, we found this signal and we found the ship and there's these pods that we've never seen before and these creatures are like nothing we've ever seen and we don't understand. And even when they latch themselves onto John Hurt's face, they're like, okay, that's bad. That's not good that it's on his face, but still, what can we learn? Well, by the time that thing busts out of John Hurt's stomach and runs off across the table, it's like, who cares what it is? Cat. <laughs> so it's like, so at that point, you go from science fiction to dealing with the central conceit of the horror film, which is fear of the unknown. Now it's like, we don't know what it is, we don't care what it is, get it away from us. <laughs> and and all the, they don't care about studying it and understanding its motives anymore. All they care about is getting away from it or killing it. And the interesting thing is, the only person still sort of holding on to that sci-fi curiosity is the robot, which I guess makes kind of sense, mm-hmm. if you're thinking about it, because he, at that point, is also one of the major vestiges of the science fiction story that's still left in it. We've talked, Diana, i talked about that's one of the problems also, once again, dogpiling on Prometheus, because that movie, because it's a prequel, is attempting to build curiosity about something that for us is a foregone conclusion. Right. We already know what the end game of this is going to be. So we're not as curious about it. We're ahead of the characters all the time. And that's not that's tricky to build dispense when you always know more than the characters do about mm-hmm. what's coming. Which we always do in a prequel in any prequel.
3: Yeah, like you you always know that Anakin Skywalker is going to become Darth Vader. It's not really a cliffhanger.
1: What? Spoiler.
3: <laughs> well, and I like how you, how you explained that too about the at some point they're like who cares what it is, just kill it because with it being a science fiction horror film, you got to right. see them go from being these oh, it's scientific to Oh screw it! We're just people trying to survive at this point. So you could be a scientist, I, you I, could be a pilot, you could be a janitor. Who freaking cares? Because right. when it comes the to the monster, doesn't care,
5: huh? Because the, the monster doesn't care.
3: Right. When all you are to order it, him I-
5: is a bag of blood and meat, and that's all he's interested <laughs> in.
3: Yeah, because, I mean, at that point, it's just, you're all the same. You're just people trying to survive the same horrible, unsurvivable situation.
5: Right, <laughs> and the interesting thing is, I mean, there's even a moment where the horror and the science fiction aspect of it sort of come into direct conflict anyway. But if you remember, right after the creature jumps out of John Hurt and is kind of waiting there, you Dakota, who's now in a horror movie, grabs the fork and is going to stab the thing to death. And Ian Holm, who's apparently still in a science fiction movie, goes, don't touch it. Don't touch it. But he still wants to learn. He still wants to find out what it is. And I think that's really interesting. It's that one moment where, and because they let it get away, it's like, oh, well, we we screwed up. Now we're in a horror movie for sure.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Moment hesitation gets you every time. <laughs>
5: Absolutely. He'd only been a little quicker with that sport. That movie would have been an hour long. <laughs>
3: Sort of
5: like in Scream, if they stopped answering the phone, it would have been over. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, there was a horror movie. Wasn't there some horror movie in the 80s called Don't Answer the Phone? <laughs> sounds
3: familiar. There was
5: a whole series of those. I know there was one called Don't Go in the House. I know that for a fact. <laughs> it
3: I- I tells you right up here. front, don't yeah, do that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
5: yeah. And they even parodied that in Grindhouse, if you remember. One of the fake trailers in Grindhouse was a movie called Don't. And it's like this horror movie. It's like, you know. If you hear, you know, if you hear a sound in the basement and you want to find out what it is, don't. It's like no. <laughs> That's great because
3: that pretty much sums up every horror film ever. <laughs> it's like what <when> yeah. person <laughs> in the right mind would do that.
5: <laughs> well, the interesting thing, one one thing I think is interesting, and one of the things that honestly has led a lot of not very good horror movies work, is Roger Ebert once talked about something that he called the idiot plot.
3: Yeah.
5: Which is basically a film, any movie where the movie would be over in five minutes if every character in it wasn't an idiot. And um, unfortunately, you see that in a lot of the worst horror movies that are out there, I think.
3: Don't you wonder if sometimes people watch things just to feel smart?
5: Yes. Yes. <laughs> As a writer, I watch Prometheus to feel smart. <laughs> That's mean. I shouldn't say that. Sorry, Ridley, if you're listening. Bad Matt,
4: You're a bad man. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now... In the book, you talk about, I don't know if you're currently doing them or they're upcoming, but uh, Dan O'Bannon writing workshops. Can you tell us a little bit more oh, about that? We, yeah, we, we've done a few of them right now. I mean,
5: basically, they're just sort of, you know, sort of in-depth presentations with examples of some of the material that's in the book. Uh, a lot of it you know, utilizes examples that people bring in from outside films that they're interested in discussing. It's a very sort of open kind of discussion format. Uh, we did, we've done it a couple of times. We did it very well. Uh, at Mysterious Galaxy Books, which is a um, fantasy science fiction bookshop in San Diego. And we're actually going to be at the writer's store in Burbank on Saturday, and we're going to be doing the presentation there. Uh, and I'm going to be speaking at the Script Writers Network in Los Angeles on uh, March 23rd, and we'll be presenting it there as well.
1: And what if someone's listening to this and they want to schedule or book the workshop? How about they do so?
5: And
3: maybe tell us a little bit about what you cover in the workshop.
5: Well, we talk about a lot of the things that we've discussed. We go a little bit more in-depth into hedonic adaptation. We use a lot more sort of examples, not just from dance films, but from contemporary films. Uh, You know, ideally, what I'm going to be doing before regularly, my hope is that people will be seeing movies like maybe something that came out like the previous week that we can discuss, that everybody who's registered, tell them, go see this movie. It comes out the week before your workshop, and we're going to talk about it so we can really get hands-on with something that's out there. Because one of the keys to this is that, these ideas don't just work for classic films. They don't just work for the films that Dan wrote. There's a reason we discuss Aristotle in that book. It was ever thus, as far as storytelling goes. This stuff has been out there for thousands of years. That's one of the reasons also why two of the things that we analyze are a play by Ibsen and a play by Shakespeare. Because this stuff doesn't just work on, on film, too. It worked, on, it worked before there even was film. If people are interested in you know, talking about a workshop or having us come to present one, the best thing to do probably would be to, to, to contact me directly. My email is matt at com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Dan O'Bannon Book, uh, and you can find information uh, for us that way. Plus, there's also the Dan O'Bannon fan page on Facebook as well.
1: Also in the book, uh, Diane, it says that you are working on other projects, uh, for example, the Necronomicon. I'm a big H.P. Lovecraft fan. So that,
3: <laughs> he perked up. I with
4: perked that. up when I heard that.
1: <laughs> I'm curious about that and any other project.
4: Well, yeah, Dan, um, of course, a big uh, Lovecraft fan, and people had um, people know that Lovecraft invented a a pretend book called The Necronomicon about how to summon demons and things like this. And uh, people have come out with them in the past, and Dan was always really disappointed. He said, oh, this is junk, you know. So he set out a number of years ago to write a convincing Necronomicon, which he managed to do. He did finish it up. It's very, very interesting. And um, I'm I'm really debating how to put it out. I think it's going to be more of an art piece, a limited edition art piece, although it is piece of writing. So I think it'll, I'll make it an addition of about 500 and uh, leave it at that. So that's something that's going to happen. I hope it will be available um, before Christmas so everybody can do that. And there's also some screenplays, some smaller screenplays. Dan was convinced, and I think he was correct at the end of his life, that you know getting these larger films made was practically impossible. And so he started writing some uh, extremely low micro-budget uh, horror flicks. So I got a couple of scripts like that that I have uh, that they're being nibbled at. But I can only do so much at one time, really. You, you know, we might see a couple little low-budget horrors out of dance. because it's not the amount of money. It's the tension you build, mm-hmm. not the amount of money you spend on stuff. You know, it's like... Like um, like Julie was saying, it's the it's how you build the tension and the suspense and the concepts fine. it that's really good. I mean, I think Dan proved that with, the, with some of these little low budgets that he the two low budgets that he wrote. Well,
3: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can't you can't just buy quality. I mean, you know, you if right. you have a strong script like his have always been so strong. I mean, you can do it on a shoestring budget and make
5: a fantastic film. Yeah, well, you mentioned yeah, Paranormal Activity. Her. The first film in that series was shot for 15 grand. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Clever, clever yeah. writing. People will watch Clever writing. I'm too chicken. <laughs> oh, yeah, she won't watch Paranormal Activity. I'm too activity. chicken
3: for Paranormal Activity. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm not a huge chicken. I even used to write for a horror website.
5: <laughs> we need to we need to start you out with something tame. So you just watch the first Human Centipede, because it's not as story. Uh, no. as <laughs> Human Centipede 2.
3: I am so not going to fall for that, but thank you.
1: <laughs> there's dogs in it.
5: Oh, Everybody likes dogs.
1: I haven't even watched that yet. I'm not, I, I, the idea doesn't appeal to me. I watch like ABCs of death and VHS or whatever, but Human Centipede just seems kind of disturbing. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I'll be honest, because I've seen them both now. I feel like the first one is something you have to get through to get to the second one because the second one's actually pretty good. Uh,
3: oh, really? That's your that's your yeah. sort of like grandchildren are your reward for not killing oh, your oh, kids. Well, not? you
5: should tell
4: yeah. you should tell them about your uh, tell them about your uh, th- zombie site
5: Matt. Oh yeah, my blog. I read a blog. How could I forget? Uh, I read a blog called The Movie Zombie, mm-hmm. and uh, basically we just you know do film reviews. I'm doing a series on my favorite screenplays. I do you know different series. I have a, a thing called The Academy of the Underrated. I write about movies that I think are underrated films. I do, you know, foreign films. I call it Zombie Internationale. I do any, anything that's new, it's fresh from the graves. So it's all like a zombie scene. <laughs> but yeah, you can visit that at themoviezombie.blogspot.com. I don't get to update as much as I'd like. I've been busy with the books, so I haven't posted anything in a couple of weeks, but uh, hopefully I'll be getting something up there. I haven't even posted my top ten for 2012 yet. I'm way, way behind. But, um, oh, there's a lot, there's a
4: lot of good writing on there, a lot of good analysis. There's plenty to chew on. That sounds like a really great site. We're going to have to check
3: that out. All the yeah. listeners, check out that site. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you. Well, excellent. Is there anything else you would like to add? Any other projects in the works or any other way to uh, contact you?
5: You have the email and you have the, uh, the Twitter. That's a good way to reach me. Um, you know, I have, I have some other things of my own in the works. I'm actually hopefully getting ready to write a book, uh, another sort of film related book, basically about sort of dealing with the writing lifestyle when you're not doing it full-time, when you're basically like kind of juggling a day job and writing full-time. Uh, it, the working title that I have for it is The Not Quite 9-to-5 Writer. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of people about this idea, and they're really enthusiastic about it. So I've begun preliminary work on that, and I think it could be something really, really useful. A book I wish that I'd had 20 years ago when I was first getting started. That sounds great. And I am?
4: This book is really the result of, you know, almost 40 years of writing experience. I think it's really worth uh, checking out,
3: yes, and marks and i we're you know we're just so you know thank you both for for uh, continuing you know this this work and and for Diane having the the strength and the the foresight and the grace to continue on uh your late husband's work to to pass this on because this is a lot of really beneficial, very well done writing that is i i mean honestly we think it's going to help a lot of people. So, Thank no. you
4: very much, Julie. I, I appreciate Thank hearing you. that, and I thought it was too good and too, too rich too rich to not go out into the world.:
3: Hi, I'm George Strayton, screenwriter of
4: Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess. And you're listening to Genretainment.
2: Thank you to Matt and Diane for agreeing to the interview, and we wish them luck with the book and other future projects.
1: Now it's time for a bonus interview with the stars of Star Galactica, Blood and Chrome. This spinoff premiered online as a web series and just premiered as a two-hour TV movie on Sci-Fi Channel. Now, if you're a fan of the reimagined Star Galactica series, then do yourself a favor and check Blood and Chrome out.
2: Yes, it was great to see Galactica fighting Cylons again.
1: Yeah, the acting was great, the visual effects and action was strong. And uh, the storyline kept us on the edge of our seats.
2: Yeah, it was really good. So, here's hoping we see more Blood and Chrome. Now, let's see what the stars had to say about their experience working on the show.
6: Dear Dad, in your last letter, you questioned whether it's my responsibility to join this fight. The truth is, we all became responsible the day we created the
1: Cylons. Hi, guys. Thanks for uh, speaking with us today. You bet. Hello. Hey. You're welcome. Um, I was wondering how you guys feel about this unique release model for the show. going online first and T V. How do you feel about that?
0: Ben General. Uh, this is Ben. Um I think it's great. I it's new to me. I had never heard of uh, anybody doing that
1: before. Do, do you like it as an actor, you know, getting some extra exposure online first before television or, or, or were you a little nervous about that?
6: No, I wasn't nervous about it. I mean to me I you know. Go ahead, Luke. I was going to I mean, I, you know, I think for me, so many people are, so many people are actually using the internet now to watch movies and, you know, series and you know, kind of tuning in on iPlayer and, you know, all these different, all these different kind of means of watching their, their favorite TV shows online. Um, and you know, the, one guy said it to me a few weeks ago. He said, uh, internet is the new TV. Um, and you know, I think being able to kind of to take a laptop with you wherever you go, it's so mobile, and you can just watch things anywhere. You know, I think I think it's great. I think people, you know, being people being able to watch it online first is fantastic. You know, especially for people over um, my side of the pond over in England, I think it's brilliant. You know, uh, we don't have the Sci-Fi Channel over in the UK. Not everybody has it over here in the UK, so you know, it's quite a it's quite a niche channel. Um, and so, for people yeah. to people to be able to watch it online first, I think it's it's fantastic.
1: Great. Right on. How did you both become involved in Blood and Chrome? And were you fans of Battlestar Galactica before being cast in the show?
0: Uh, Go ahead, Ben. Uh, this is Ben. I uh, I went to an audition, just like uh, anything else, I guess. I went to an audition, had a couple callbacks, and then uh, we went down to uh, L.A. to screen test for it, and that's where I met Luke. And we read together in the room with uh, a group of uh, execs and producers. and That was basically... That's the
6: short version. I was kind of the complete opposite of ben. I actually didn't go into. Um, I, I didn't uh, audition from uh, America. I, I, um, I was sent the script by my my representatives, um, and I kind of I, I wasn't a fan of Battlestar before. I'd always heard of the franchise and the kind of phenomenon that was, um, but I was never I was never really a fan. I knew I knew how you know how well received it was, but when I got sent the script, I, I loved it. I thought it was great, and I'd you know. I sent myself uh, I sent a uh, self tape over um over to the States and it was it was brilliant. I, a few, few days afterwards I got call- I got a call from uh, Jonas Pate, who directed um Baby Notes. I retaped, and then uh, a couple of weeks after that I got thrown out to test and like Ben said, that's where we met and kind of our journey started there really. Uh I started to watch
0: um a few episodes and I I just thought, you know what, I gotta just focus on this. And also my character wasn't in the other series, so it wasn't uh I didn't have to Know that world terribly well, um, beyond what was in our. So I I opted to sort of pick my battles and because uh, we, but but from from the time that that I found out that I booked the job to shooting really wasn't that much time. So
6: you kind of had to pick where you focus. For me, yeah, being a being a Battlestar Virgin, uh, the first thing that David Icke did to me was throw seasons one and two of Caprica at me because obviously uh, that was like you know that's kind of the the, the dawn. You know the start right. of uh, this whole uh, the kind of the cylon and the you know the birth of the cylons in caprica and and I think that you know, that was his um that was his kind of his input to my to my performance really just sit down and watch watch caprica just so you know where where we're at in terms of in terms of story and I did and you know i really enjoyed it and it helped me a lot to see to see where you know where where our um, our our show fit into the whole Battlestar mix, you know, to see that first. Um, and, and you know, like I said, anything that you know, anything that's all set completely, it's all set completely in the future. So that didn't really affect affect my performance at all. But Caprica, I did watch. Yeah, but I was given um, Eddie's email address, so we we were kind of sending uh, emails back and forwards. But none of it was really about the work um, in terms of material and script and performance. It was more just about what to expect and you know, kind of the head to go into this into this whole thing with and you know, kind of what, just, just to what to expect, really. And it was, um, I kind of, I didn't really want, um, not that I don't think Eddie's great, I think he's fantastic. He, he, he did an amazing job, and he's got such a huge fan base. I feel like he really did, you know, he helped make Battlestar what it is today. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I, did, I didn't really want any advice um, in, terms of, in terms of performance-wise from Eddie, because I think seeing Adama at the age that I portray him um, compared to the age that uh, Eddie portrays him is two completely, completely different stages of, of, uh, of anyone's life. Um and I didn't yeah. want anything that Eddie said to me to um to kind of really affect my interpretation of the material in, in a way. You know, I just wanted to go into it with a clear head and you know, and just kind of kind of take the take the writing for what I saw, really and just kind of get my own stamp on it. Even even someone like me that isn't isn't uh, isn't a, a kind of a, I wasn't a Battlestar fan before before I was involved in it. People like to see action. People like to see relationships. People like to see, um, you know, real life stories. People like to see drama. They like to see. They like to see comedy. They like to be humid. They like all these different yeah. things. And Battlestar can offer that. The only difference is between Battlestar and, and any other show is that it's set in space. You know, we're, we're, yeah. we're dealing, I think we're dealing with real. We're, we're, you know, we're with real, real life, real life situations here. Whether it be, you know, whether it's love, it's hate, it's you know, there's everything going on there um in it's the and it's just set in space. Just, so it just mm-hmm. looks cool and it, you know, and people it's obviously the, like like the like what the Battlestar Battlestar Galactica franchise does for them and and you know, I'm, i speak to for Ben as well, I'm sure, we're just eternally grateful. Mm-hmm. The green screen, you know,
0: everybody everybody kind of um, kept saying before we started oh, it's gonna be so hot, it's gonna be so crazy. But, uh, I didn't find it to be too much of a challenge uh there's little markers that you can pick for, to have a, you know an imaginary spaceship out there or whatever it is but uh after watching some of the dailies, I realized you know you, you, that I wasn't taking in the environment as much as I would if I was actually in some kind of a silon facility or whatever but uh once you figure that out I, I i didn't find it too challenging at all
6: yeah i mean i I was kind of um, i tried a little bit. Daunted by the whole thing when I first when I first realised what the you know the scale of how much green screen green screen we would be using and like Ben said you actually know, environmentally um, you know it kind of it, it kind of you would think it would have caused problems in terms of where you're going to be and um, you know, you know kind of a lot of people we actually don't have any kind of physical set to touch or work with but you know we did we were given some some kind of you know our plots and a lot of the, the foreground stuff in on our sets were were actually you know, they were props and stuff that we could actually physically touch and move and and move around and stuff. But I think the, the hardest thing for me that I found was really just to to the the stuff in the spaceships, like like Ben said, when we were in our uh, in our Raptor. They were the hardest bits. So obviously, trying to you know when something hits the windscreen or we have something flying over our heads, we actually don't have any of that to play to. All we have right. is like a tennis ball on the end of a stick that we have to follow. You know, that's that was really the the kind of the hardest. The hardest for me, but everything else was really just yeah. I mean, it all, it all came. It all, I think we, I think speak for Ben as well, I think we we kind of adapted to it a lot quicker than we thought we would. Yeah, I mean, we were turning a set before we before we started filming. We were given a, we were given a book, um, and it was a kind of like a, a pages and pages of of what the sets would actually look like. But we all we had all we had as reference really was a piece of paper with a fantastic you know beautifully beautifully almost drawn out computer-generated image of what the set would actually look like and then you take that image and in your head and then you have to kind of Visualize your surroundings based on a picture given to you on a piece of paper So it does it does involve imagination for sure Um, and I think Mm -hmm. that you know that that's what acting is That's what performances are all about. You have to be able to take your character and your performance any which way you can and to go in there and like we said before you know, it did cause it kind of post problems in in certain areas just because me and Ben had never really worked on green screen to that scale before. But ultimately, it was just such an enjoyable experience, and I, it, it taught me so much about you know about our work. For mm-hmm. sure. Um, so you know, um, yeah, it, it, it was great. It was
0: great. And you do kind of get accustomed to you know having to imagine. I mean, a lot of the times when you do close ups and that, the other actor can't even be in your eye line because you are too close to the camera. You have to. You know, half the time you're talking to a piece of tape,
6: <laughs> so you you know you get used to um, you know using your imagination a bit. With a virtual environment like we create, like uh, Gary Hudson and the rest of the special effects team created on Battlestar, you can take you can take it anywhere. You know you don't. You, there's no such thing as a location anymore with this kind of technology. You know we did we shot every every day of our shoot was in one studio surrounded by green walls, you know, we didn't, we weren't, we didn't have to visit any locations. And by doing that, that's where you can, that's when you can achieve anything you want. You could, we could have put, we could have put a sandy beach on that backdrop. We could have put, you
1: know, yeah.
6: a, a snowy mountain, which we did. We could put we anything did. on that backdrop that we want. And that's, that's what, that's yeah. what I love about it. We can, we can, you know, you can take a story anywhere with this kind of technology and it's great. Yeah. That was
0: phenomenal. It it becomes a little bit like doing like a a black box theater type of situation, you know, where you just, you just have to use your imagination.
1: Well, I really enjoyed Blend Chrome and and wish you guys luck. I hope it does as well on TV as online. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot.
6: Take care. Thank you very much. brother.
1: Hi, I'm Blake Calhoun, the creator of the web series Pink and the sci-fi web series Continuum. And you're listening to Genretainment Radio.
2: Thank you to Luke and Ben for speaking with us and to Sci-Fi for arranging the opportunity. And we also want to point out that the unrated DVD and Blu-ray will come out in the U.S. on February 19th. And you have up to 30 minutes of deleted scenes.
1: Cool. Well, that's it for today's Genretainment. Check back next week with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series.
2: Including the return of comic book writer Dirk Manning. Now, he will be visiting us next week to talk about his new book, Right or Wrong? Also coming soon, we'll be talking to writer and consultant Jennifer Dornbush about her new book, Forensic Speak, How to Write Realistic Crime Dramas. Plus, our upcoming interview with one of the stars of the action comedy web series, Adventures of Super 7.
1: And don't forget, you can check out all of our past episodes and archives at scifipulseradio.com. You can also check out the other great shows on this channel like Ian Collins, SFP Now, The Roundtable, and Jeff Trick.
2: And genretainment will be back right here on this channel at SciFiPulseRadio.com next Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening. Until, Until next, next time. time.